Hello, and welcome to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. In Her Room is supported by listeners like you. Contribute to keeping the show ad-free at patreon.com slash inherroom, or visit our website to make a one-time donation. Your support keeps women's voices on the air. This week's guest on In Her Room is Maggie Messett. From her place as an inside outsider in rural South Africa, Maggie Messett discovered she was in the position to tell a story that no one else might have. Her persistence, curiosity, and deep respect for people and story carries through all her work, from South Africa to the rural United States to the mysteries of family, connection, and identity. Her first book, The Rainy Season, tells the story of her time in South Africa with grace and grit. Maggie, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Uh, Thank you for having me, Sarah. I am so excited to talk with you. I really loved your book that came out earlier this spring. It's called The Rainy Season, and I'm super excited to talk about that and all of the other projects that you're working on, as well as teaching and being a writer and lots of other things. But to start off, I'd love to know, what is writing to you? That's a great question, and it's probably it's a very difficult one. Um Writing for me has long been a way inside people unlike me. Um, It's been a way to understand the world more complexly. More recently, writing has been a way into understanding questions or being able to try and answer some questions that there are no real definitive answers to. So definitely far more personal. Mm -hmm. You have part of your writing background and a large part of that background is as a journalist, um, particularly as an immersion journalist, really being in a place. And you spent several years living in South Africa and as working as a writer and a journalist and actually opening a teaching school for girls to learn how to write. And I'd love to hear about how you ended up in Africa and what that experience meant for you? Well, um, I am every parent's worst nightmare. At about 24, I moved to South Africa with a one-way ticket. Um, I had been a creative writing dropout. So I was in an MFA program right outside of uh, undergrad and was there a year and realized, especially within the genre of nonfiction and the um, end of the very sort of large spectrum of creative nonfiction that I was most interested in, I wasn't feeling like the MFA program was giving me what I needed. And um, after leaving, I went and I taught and was freelance writing, but had this opportunity to move to South Africa and really made a, a quick life decision to kind of sell what I didn't need and pack up some duffel bags and put a few things into storage and to move to South Africa with a one-way ticket, um, really right, right before I turned 25. And I knew quite clearly what I wanted to do. I knew that immersion journalism was something that I really wanted to play with more, 
having a background in um, documentary filmmaking and newspapers and broadcast, but none of which that I really seriously invested myself in. When I moved to South Africa, I saw an opportunity to really tell stories in communities that had little to no written history. And I saw an opportunity to work on stories that felt deeply important. And it's not that the stories I could be telling in the U.S. weren't important, but I knew that there were less people trying to tell the stories in rural South Africa. And that it was also an amazingly unique time in South African history It was 10 years post-apartheid, or really less than 10 years post-apartheid. I moved there in 2003. And the opportunities available to me were great, but the opportunities available to the women in the communities that I was investing myself in were really minimal. And I really reach into anthropology for a lot of my fieldwork skills and for a lot of my thinking when I'm inside a community that is deeply outside of my upbringing and outside of my experience. And I was reaching out to community members to be somewhat of cultural brokers. So, um, you know, the idea that I need to speak to someone after having a research or a reporting experience in order to kind of digest and talk about the cultural background, the historical background, the geographic background, um, so that I'm not just a parachute journalist dropping in, figuring out what fits into the storyline that I'm looking for and then leaving, that I needed to really have a deep understanding as to why things were happening. And I quickly realized that there just weren't any local reporters, and there were a lot of small newspapers that were popping up, and they didn't really have any anyone that had been trained to be a reporter. And yet, we had a community of around 250,000 people, mostly women and children, who needed jobs. And so... I was very fortunate to have a grant from the Media Development and Diversity Agency to help sort of do some small print journalism research and look and see how best it would be to train someone on the ground to be a local reporter, but also to sort of be those cultural brokers for people who are from the outside coming in wanting to tell stories about their community. But also, most importantly to me, I felt like outsiders shouldn't be the sole people telling those stories, that the women in that community should be able to start writing the stories that represent the important issues and the important cultural issues um, within their community and not just publish locally, but publish nationally and internationally. So ultimately, that grant evolved into establishing a school, a Maswi School of Media Arts, and connected to that school was a local newspaper in Acorn Hook, the first newspaper in that community. And also, for a short period of time, a uh, print magazine, a literary magazine that was exclusively nonfiction storytelling focused on the continent of Africa for European and American readers. Mm. But during that time, I was also um, paying my bills through freelance writing because nonprofit work is not how you're going to um, pay your bills, particularly in rural Africa. So I was slowly developing my own writing, not for that newspaper, but for publications outside of South Africa. Mm-hmm. 
And your book, The Rainy Season, is about your time in Africa, and it really focuses on the stories of three people in that community. And through their lives and their stories, you are able to transport the reader to this community in South Africa. And for someone like myself, who has an upbringing in a a life that is vastly different from rural South Africa, um, to really feel both transported to that place and also the profound gift of being able to be brought in as an outsider and feel that place and that sense without feeling like a cultural invader. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's a great way of saying it. Um, My primary objective is to not be a cultural invader. And that's kind of the beauty of immersion journalism if it's done well. And I I really actually want to, you know, take a moment and say, that immersion is not necessarily attached to journalism. It's a form of information gathering. It's a reportage tool that I really like to talk to writers of fiction and poets about using the same tools Mm -hmm. to deeply investigate something and understand something so that they can best or most accurately depict a culture or a place or a time or people within their writing. And so for me, immersion in this case for the rainy season was super intense. There was a component to it for six years that I was immersed inside this community, that I was working there as the editor of a newspaper, as the director of this school, as a reporter working on, you know, long form pieces, but magazine and newspaper pieces. But once I decided that I really was going to write a book and I think that's a really difficult decision because I had to go through my own sort of ethical um, sort of tornado of asking myself questions about whether or not I had the right to to write a book and, and write the first book about this community. And ultimately, I realized that I actually had a really unique situation where I had access to a community that even most urban South African journalists didn't have access to, that I, as a woman, had access to both the women's lives in the community as well as the men's lives in the community. And I should say, as a white foreign woman, this was really sort of contradictory to what I would have believed prior to being there. But I was given access because to most of the men, I was still a woman, and so therefore the power dynamic they really sort of felt like they had the upper hand, but they also wanted to let me in to sort of understand that side of the community and that side of the culture. So I felt extremely privileged to have this access that in a community that most tourists don't even see, most tourists bypass this community to go to Kruger National Park, which is a huge tourist location, but nobody's really stopping. So I really recognized that I couldn't miss this opportunity to invest time in telling real people's stories, because I ultimately believe that in order to understand South Africa, you have to understand rural 
communities and rural community members and the stories and the history there, because that's the large majority of the country. Even though we think of Cape Town and Joburg and we think of these stories that we read about in the newspaper or through literature or through film, you're mostly inside urban townships or rural Afrikaans farms. And that's about it. And so it was really important to me to make sure that I didn't waste this opportunity to share these stories with people who were never going to be going there, would never have the access that I had, which meant that, you know, I needed to spend a lot of time with Donkey and Toko and Regina, the three main characters in the rainy season, long before I ever truly started, quote, reporting for the book. They needed to feel comfortable with me. They needed to know what I was doing. And at some point, they also needed to get to a place where they not only accepted all of those things, but they also thought, oh, she's really not going away. Well, we're just going to kind of move on with our normal everyday actions, and she's just going to still be here and show up every day with her notebook and her recorder on her hip and her camera on her back. And, you know, if we're doing laundry, we might as well hand her some because it'll get done faster, right? So, mm. you know, in in my impact, my impact became very low. Clearly, it was increased if I was able to help with field work or I was able to help with laundry or those small things. But in terms of their story, I just started to blend in. I was just sort of somebody that came around that they knew what I was doing. And sometimes they would forget and I'd have to remind them. But ultimately, like a documentary filmmaker, I was there hanging out and letting story unfold and letting the important storylines come to the surface instead of being somebody that says, this is the story I want to tell. Let me drop into Roybach, this small community with an acorn hook, find the story to plug into my pre-existing framework and leave. It's that's so huge. That's, I think, a piece of immersion and immersion, both immersion reporting and creative immersion that is so hard to get right. And and we see it when we read nonfiction by sociologists or social anthropologists or other people who are doing that sort of immersion work. There is immersion that's done really well, and then there's the immersion that's about finding the story that fits what you already think and making that be the story you tell instead of really seeing what's there. Um, and I think that's one of the things that makes this book so impactful and so powerful. Oh, thank you. I, you know, I think academically I've been able to think about it. I'm finishing up my PhD and, um, I think thinking about it in the way academics think about it, I have been able to recognize that in the type of immersion that I did with the rainy season, Unlike a lot of social anthropologists or sociologists, this wasn't a study of the other, right? This was a human study. The idea was to make sure that I was talking about larger complex issues through the stories of everyday people. And it didn't really matter to me if I was in, you know, rural Midwestern America or rural South Africa, I was ultimately at the core, obviously with a different setting and a different history and a different culture, but at the core, I'm just telling real people's stories. And, 
you know, it's really important to remember that at the heart of it, that is the universal connection we all have. Absolutely. I'd love it if you might read from the rainy season for us. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to dive in and actually just read chapter one for you. Um, To give you a little bit of context, there are three main characters in the rainy season. And the structure of the rainy season is spring, summer, and fall. And Tokomakwakwa is the first character that you're introduced to. Um, But she shares the community of Rybak with Regina and Dunkey. Tokomakwakwa was always open for business. Balancing beside her open back door, the totem of two speakers and red Coca-Cola crates throbbed Queto music, a South African fusion of hip-hop, house music, and jazz. Had you passed through this crooked door two years earlier, you would have found Toko's pots and pans, her chip mugs and mismatched silverware, her kitchen table and chairs, her tabletop baker and hot plates, her electric oven and stovetop, bins of maize meal and baggies of dried mapani worms, and possibly a few barrels of water. But the kitchen had been moved to a small sitting room, and inside now stood a warped snooker table and a bright red jukebox. Toko, a 42-year-old long-limbed, raw-boned woman with two missing front teeth, had converted her kitchen into a shabine, a backdoor off-the-books pub. Men sat on the stoop of Toko's nine-room house with bottles of Black Label, America's lusty, lively beer, and yellow plastic buckets of traditional brew. Young boys and their older brothers or fathers, who only appear at the end of each month, were playing snooker in the shabeen while music rumbled and the tin roof rattled. Single-rand coins were slipped into the jukebox, barred and bolted against the crumbling handmade wall, and voices of Zulu, Sutu, English, and Kosa jumped from the speakers. Music swirled around customers riding on the backs of springtime winds, down the hill toward the river's reed-filled edge, or up toward the cemetery that borders the open bush. Men just off the bus or taxi from the north, south, and west, where they work in the trees, city, factory, or fields, fed one rand coins into the billiard table and five rand coins into the hands of Toko's children for a bucket of shikapka, traditional beer. The older men, retired on medical disability or simply out of work, sat with it in their hands, cheaper than the bottles of beer and a preferred taste for the more traditional tongue, not to mention more effective in making the world spin. Buckets with the grainy residue of shikapka consumed over time or in long purposeful gulps lay on the ground and in stacks. The crack of a snooker break or the start of a new song rang like a till through the bodies and buildings in Toko's yard. As the sun went down and the moon crawled into the endless sky, customers multiplied. The sweet smell of sweat pouring down gyrating bodies was the fragrance of Toko making money. It was payday. Toko's homestead was a collection of four plots rented from the local tribal authority. A chain-link fence lined its perimeter, supported by a collection of mismatched, waist-high iron poles and tree branches collected from the surrounding bush. A large, rectangular, western-style cement house, two cement rondavels, and three mud-packed single rooms had been built on two plots, while the other two dust- and weed-filled plots sat empty. At month-end, there are two kinds of pockets. Some are quiet, 
filled with crisp bills of blue buffalo, pink lions, brown elephant, green rhino, and maybe even a few leopards. Others are filled with noisy proteas and lilies, springbok and kudu, and hopefully a few black wildebeest in the herd. The men who've returned for their few days of month-end holiday arrive with cash-filled envelopes or crisp bills, just pulled from the mouth of an ATM. Their pockets are mute, at least before they enter Toko's gates. Those who cross the threshold already jingling have generally been around all month, looking forward to the sight of more men, the arrival of friends, fathers, sons, and brothers. The noisy ones count five cents, ten cents, proteas, and lilies until there's enough to fill a garden, enough to exchange for a single springbok to play a song. Those who put their hands in their pockets to prevent the clink and clank of their savings pull a collection of sweaty antelope for a bucket to drink around the corner, out of sight. Once empty, it's quickly replaced with a bottle of Black Label to hold while the traditional buzz crawls through their bodies. Two single-room thatched buildings sit just inside Toko's gates. The one on the right is for her mother's ancestors. The one on the left is for her father's ancestors. The second is Toko's Ndumba, where she consults with clients. While many men and the occasional woman play games, drink, sing, dance, inside and around the shabin, Toko sits inside her Ndumba as a Sangoma, connecting with her ancestors, answering questions about health, wealth, fidelity, and foe. During the first weekend after payday, Toko's businesses were equally busy. Lines would form outside the Ndumba with people sitting around the tree and on the ledge of the opposite rondavel. Bodies would fill her old kitchen, and the ledge around the Western-style house resembled the Saturday night quarters of an urban Shabin queen. During the last weekend of September, when the early winter chills had passed and the spring gusts were dancing like children in the street, Toko sat in her Ndumba with a worried mother and deteriorated daughter. The three women sat on traditionally woven grass mats laid across the cement floor two on the left overlapping like the letter V, skewed by the curve of the wall. A third sangu crossed the center of the room, parallel with three white sheets strung on a laundry line and fastened with plastic clothespins, partitioning the far third of the room from view. An emaciated young woman, Lindiwe, sat against the wall beside her mother and opposite Toko, who knelt on her knees in the center of the room, preparing to connect with her father's ancestors. She pulled on her red, blue, and white beaded necklace and bracelets as a Western physician dresses in a lab coat and hangs a stethoscope around her neck. It was symbolic of credentials, symbolic of status and profession. And with the final fasten of her bracelet's lanyard-like loop, she pulled the far edge of her sangu toward her, revealing the floor beneath. As she reached for an arm-length spear from the edge of the white curtain, Lindiwe's mother placed her 100 rand payment on the cold cement floor. Toko used the wooden handle of her spear to cover but not touch the crinkled note. She flipped the edge of the sangu to hide the staring blue buffalo placed there by the apprehensive mother, cognizant of the ancestor's powers, edgy for what could be. The glittery golden ink on the bill's lower right corner, popping the numbers 100, sat at the edge of the blue buffalo's chin. An amount the mother had collected over weeks and topped off by month-end payday. About $14, or 100 rand, roughly one half of a monthly child grant, 40 loaves of bread, 14 liters of cool drink, just over half the initial cost of a tribal housing plot, 
or one student's annual school fees, 100 rand to answer the questions that plagued her daughter, 100 rand to reveal the reasons for her daughter's paralysis and pain, to offer what she saw as a propitious treatment for her child's deterioration. Inside her indumba, Toko pulled a small burlap bag from behind the curtains, revealing for just a moment hundreds of bottles. After opening its top and rolling down its sides, Toko held the bag with both hands like an offering. She reached beneath the neckline of her shirt, skimming the beaded necklace and its two acorn-shaped pendants, digging around the confines of her bra's right cup. She pulled out a plastic disc-shaped container with a yellow cap. Removing the top, she pinched three fingers like a claw, extracted dark brown snuff, and dusted the contents of her bag. Lowering her head and arching her body toward the left, Toko lifted a dash of snuff to each nostril and sniffed. Kutsaha, sniff, kutsaha, sniff. Toko's muti ingredients were hidden behind the stained white curtain. Her collection had grown from 170 to 240 bottles, jars, tins, paper bags, and sheets of newspaper filled with shaven, diced, sliced, grated ground, and whole portions of flora and fauna from in and around the region. Years of dust covered the caps and dirt caked each crevice, from beer and whiskey bottles to hair cream canisters and shoe polish tins, baby food and jam jars, pharmacy vials and vitamin bottles. A cross between a pharmaceutical cabinet and a hoarder's treasure hid behind the curtain. Half a dozen matchboxes, nearly a dozen dung beetle balls, three spears, only one of which with a metal tip, porcupine quills, crumpled pieces of paper, a stack of plate-sized cardboard squares, a few roots in whole form, two pieces of wood. Speaking softly, with a voice deeper and raspier than outside of her indumba, Toko lifted the bag and tilted it to the right, shaking in a circular motion, filling the grass mat before her with the contents of the bag, dominoes and currency, bones from the lion, elephant, zebra, bush pig, steenbok, and baboon, one small water level, marulu, Marula and Futsu seeds, an odd collection of shells, including one large blotched cowrie, and several other objects with origins in the bush. As the last item hit the mat, she dropped the empty bag and picked up the plastic canister of snuff once more. With her right pointer finger, Toko lifted a dash of snuff to each nostril and sniffed, just as she had done minutes before. Kutsaha, sniff, kutsaha, sniff. With this second inhalation, Toko's voice began to dig deeper and deeper, raspier and raspier, chanting in question, seeking the ancestors for help, repeating two words over and over again, connected by the tap of her wooden spear in the cement floor, on the cement floor. Shavuma, tap, shavuma, tap, shavuma, tap. Matching the rhythm of her body motion, Toko rocked forward and back, forward and back, forward and back. Shavuma, tap, shavuma, tap, shavuma, tap. With each lean backward, she sought the ancestors to join her in identifying why this girl had come, why she was sitting before her, and what problems she had for her to solve. Shavuma, she repeated, shavuma. Speak, she encouraged the ancestors, speak. Toko began to tell Lindiwe that she was sick. The wooden spear moved forward, pointing out objects on the mat that identified her symptoms. Malengi, Yawena, she said, pointing to an object on her sangu. Your legs. Voko, Yawena, she said, pointing toward another. 
Your arms, pain in your arms and legs, she elaborated, never looking up, always pointing toward or inspecting the objects strewn across the grass mat. Silence filled the stale, confined air of the Ndumba as she looked for something within the objects spread across its center. Toko began to sweep the bones from the grass mat into a mound before her, leaning across the sangu, reaching as far as her arms would take her. From these objects, she pulled a blotched cowrie shell the size of her fist and began to encircle the mound like the moon orbits the earth. One, two, three. Its open base never left the mat while she drew the revolving pattern, not until the third circle was complete, after which she placed the shell on the mound of bones and picked them up in the scoop of her hands, just barely large enough to hold the collection. She began to move her hands upward and then let them drop to hit the mat, causing the rattle of each object, a motion she repeated three times before the final lift and release of the bones, across the mat, off the sides, onto the floor, and there it was. The ancestors were revealing the truth. The large cowrie shell had flipped. Sitting on the ground amongst a constellation of bones, paranormally arranged, was the white underbelly of the cowrie shell and its jagged-toothed opening. The young woman was ill because the ancestors were calling her to fulfill her predestined mission in life. They were calling her to train. She had been chosen to become a singoma. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I, you know, every time I read that, it kind of brings me back inside Toko's Ndumbo, where I really spent a lot of time for, you know, a, at least the intensity of one year that I was really inside Roybach for about 70% of my waking hours, but also beyond that. You know, this was a space that I was really privileged to be inside and learn about through Toko. I love that. And I, there is so clearly in your writing that, that recognition of the honor and the privilege to be in that space and what it means to tell the story of that space. So thank you so much for sharing that. Well, thank you. I'd love to know the best advice you've ever received. Oh, um, I don't know if it was directly this way. This is how I've translated it, and this is really what I pass on to others. So I think the best advice I've received is is the advice that I continue to share with young writers, which is, um, which is to shut up and listen. I think that especially in nonfiction, when we're telling the stories of others, we far too often want to invade that story. And I found, especially in South Africa, that I needed to learn to be super quiet and listen and let others drive the story and where it's going and let others have space to tell their own stories. I love that. Shut up and listen. It's great advice. <laughs> it's very simple. We should actually apply it to large <laughs> portions of our lives, but it's a good writing and reporting advice as well. Absolutely. I want to shift gears a little bit and I want to talk about the project that you're working on now. Of course. Which I think also ties into your advice, um, but in a different way. You're currently working on a hybrid investigation memoir. And one of the interesting things about this particular project is that it falls into the category of having a missing co-author. And I'd love it if you could tell us about this project and really what compelled you to start it. 
Well, I started my PhD in 2012 with the intention of working on um, two entirely different books. And I started those books, but um, my aunt, my mother's youngest sister, who was 20 years older than me, who was a visual artist and an actress and in her later years was writing a novel as well as a memoir. Um, she had gone missing in 2009 and it was one of the reasons why I was really drawn to return to the U.S. I had been working with my family um, from afar to try and locate her and um, eventually when I came back worked with a private investigator and while there were some conclusions drawn there, this was really sort of a, a dead end cold case. And while I was working on these other books, I had this box of letters that were filled, uh, that my mother had handed me. It was a box of letters between my mother and my aunt, as well as some letters that I had put in there that were between my aunt and I. And this box haunted me. And I really don't, typically write about family. Um, I don't write about myself. And so it wasn't necessarily in my home for me to use for a writing project. But in the end, I recognized that I actually couldn't write anything else until I took on this story. And initially, it was a story about well, initially, I'm not really sure I could say I knew exactly what I was doing in the same way that when I went into Reubach, I had to kind of go in and trust that things were going to evolve. And so I started working on this book by gathering all of those letters, reviewing them for hints of places and people uh, to go and visit. She lived in New York City, but would often boomerang to uh, small arts communities all over the U.S., and then obviously returning back to New York. And I felt deeply connected to her in certain ways. One, our sort of long search for home or a space within which we felt we could be ourselves and accepted for being ourselves. We both longed for a life of living off of our art. And we also had a lot of sort of questions about religion or spirituality in our life and our purpose of being here. And driven by those connections, I went on the road with these letters and I went to all the places that she lived and I tracked down people, which means, you know, it's really laborious work. It means, you know, I spent three days in New York City looking for a woman that was mentioned in one sentence from a letter in 1997. And I didn't have a last name. I just knew that her name was Tamara. And she was, uh, at the time, living in Egypt, working as an illustrator at an archaeological dig. And I knew that my aunt said that she was really important to her and that she was really excited that she was returning soon. But how long ago is that? And do we know, we don't know Tamara's last name and we don't know if she still lives in New York City. But I spent three days just trying to pick apart that sentence and searching for an archaeological illustrator that 
in the 90s was in Egypt for a time period and at least lived in New York around that time period and hopefully was still working on that um, or working in that field. And her name was Tamara. And I found her. And it was actually that moment where I thought, if I could find her, <laughs> then this is okay. Like, I'm I'm going to be able to find these people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really was on this exploration unsure what I was truly looking for outside of my own personal journey. And obviously as a writer, naturally sort of documenting that process. And I've really sort of come to realize that not only am I crowdsourcing a, an image of her or a portrait of her, I'm, I'm creating a portrait that one person would never have had the possibility of knowing, right? A version of her that one person didn't have the possibility of knowing because we don't actually have the privilege of knowing all sides of someone. Even if we live with them, we don't experience things with them at all times. And so as as I finished out the first three months of that work, I needed to do some real soul searching because I naturally don't include myself in things. And I recognize how false this would be if I didn't include myself And so I started this sort of exploration of this idea that I was co-authoring this book with her in a lot of ways. I have all of this writing from her. And in some places, her writing should never be, you know, replaced. So her descriptions of places as my descriptions of places. And it took me a long time. It's part of the reason this project has taken a while is that it took me a while to recognize that this was also a journey through which I was reflecting on my own life and and ultimately trying to figure out how, if I see all of these similarities, how my life in the long run ends up different than hers did. Um, but also to kind of honor her life in a way, in a real authentic way, recognizing its complexity and recognizing, um, you know, that this is not a perfect glossy image. So it has really evolved into this beast. Um, and it's now been two and a half years. And a lot has changed in her case. And that has sort of happened in the last year. But it is it is possibly the most difficult book I will ever work on. It's possibly the only memoir-type book I will work on. Um, but there are a lot of ethical questions around a project like this that differ from, or actually, I suppose, have similar lines to the ethical questions that I asked myself when putting the rainy season together, which is, do I have the right to tell her story? And do I have the right to crowdsource all of this and track these people down? And would I want somebody to do this to me? Would I want somebody, you know, 30 years from now to sort of go back and track down all the people in my life and track down, you know, I'm tracking down artwork that she sold in places and figuring out who owns it. And I'm going and trying to track down the artists that she apprenticed under. And I sit on stoops where to the houses that she once lived in. And I eventually muster the courage to knock on the door and say to people, hi, you don't know me. Many years ago, my aunt lived in a room in this house that faces north that's, you know, has three very large glass windows. Does that room still exist? And would you mind if I came in and sat in it for a while? Hmm. You know, so the, it's, it's really a, it's an amazing journey. And I feel like, 
I feel like it's a journey of letting someone who I can't talk to face to face really sort of teach me so much through her life. I think that's really powerful. And I think there's also so much that we can learn, not just from doing this kind of work, but also from from listening and learning to hear other people like yourself who are doing this kind of work. So I'm I myself I'm very excited <laughs> about this project and um, I think there's a lot in it that people who encounter your work whether it's as a teacher student um, you do a lot of teaching to writing students or as a reader I think there's something in that. Well thank you. It's um it's a scary project for me and I have had the privilege to have some great support behind it through my PhD, but also um, I'm currently at Elizabethtown College as a writer in residence, and I really feel extremely supported in this project, which um, has been a, a big surprise to me, but very welcome and um, extremely appreciated. I'd love to give you a chance to share some of your wisdom with folks who are listening to this interview and might be discovering your work for the first time? Well, I think that my work is, well, I'm not the type of writer that sticks to one subject. And I think that I've slowly had to come to terms with that. And that ultimately engaging with my work is recognizing this sort of overarching idea that I am attempting to take really complex issues or complex questions and explore them through everyday people and and have a real sense of respect for those people while also recognizing um, complexity and really bringing you inside the lives of people you would otherwise not have a chance to stand alongside. And that's the case whether I'm writing about South Africa or whether I'm writing about my aunt or a family member or whether or not, you know, a lot of the projects that I've been doing preparatory work for, um, that I've also been teaching a lot of writing about environmental sustainability or environmental issues. And those are still deeply personal people-driven stories And, you know, I really have the goal of trying to push you outside of your comfort zone and also help you recognize that you actually have deep connections with people and places that you think are so drastically different from you. Mm -hmm. Maggie, it has been so great to have you on the show today. I'm so grateful that we were able to connect and say yes and to share about your incredible work. Thank you, Sarah. It's been really fun, and I really enjoyed being able to talk about both of these projects. If listeners want to learn more about you and your work, they can find you online at meggiemessit.com. You are listening to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. I'm so glad you're a part of the In Her Room community. Without listeners like you, the show would not be possible. On our website, in-her-room.com, you'll find show notes, learn how to work with me, and have an opportunity to contribute financially to keep In Her Room on the air. 
Next week on In Her Room, we'll talk with writer, editor, and animal lover, Bronwyn Petrie. I'm Sarah Blackthorne. Let's tell our stories together.